0: Hey, everyone, it's Jacob here. Welcome back to another episode of the Law of Code podcast. This is the show covering the legal side of crypto, NFTs, DAOs, and any other blockchain-related innovation. Anything mentioned in this episode by Jacob
1: Robinson or his guests is not legal advice or investment advice. All opinions are Jacob's and his guests alone. Nothing discussed today should be relied upon for legal or investment decisions. This show is solely for information and entertainment purposes only. Jacob and his guests are not your lawyers, nor are they investment advisors. Please work directly with a lawyer
2: or investment professional.
0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Law of Code podcast. I am so excited to share this episode with you today. We have Two guests with us. The first is David M. Adlerstein. David is counsel in the corporate department at Wattel, Lipton, Rosen and Katz, where his pro- his practice focuses on corporate and securities law matters, with a particular focus on financial institutions and technology transactions. David is a member of the firm's crypto team and frequently writes and speaks about blockchain technology, cryptocurrencies and smart contracts, of which we will talk on at length. We are also joined by Kevin Schwartz, a partner in the litigation department of Wattel, Lipton, Rosen and Katz as well. Mr. Schwartz's practice or Kevin's practice includes corporate commercial and securities litigation at both the trial and appellate levels as well as a variety of regulatory and corporate governance matters that include leading the firm's specialized crypto team to address rapidly changing issues generated by the crypto asset industry. And I did want to note that we couldn't have a better set of guests for this. As a testament to their expertise in the space, watel Lipton has entered in appearance on the docket to represent Coinbase as lead attorneys. So therefore, unfortunately, we will not be touching on any specifics relating to the case. But this interview will be a really fascinating insight into how the team thinks about many aspects of digital assets, as well as their history in the space. So Kevin, Dave, thanks so much for joining me.
2: Yeah, thank you so much for having us. It's our pleasure to be here. Thanks
1: so much for having us. I'll start by appropriately noting that what Dave and I say today does not necessarily reflect the views of our clients or our firm. And I know you and your viewers understand that, but I think we all appreciate how important that disclaimer is to say at the outset. So I will underscore it for you. And as you said, we look forward to a wide ranging discussion, nevertheless, on a number of fascinating areas that we can talk about.
2: And Kevin, I'll add to that. I'm not even sure what I say reflects my own views because some of these these (laughs) things are really complicated and are are food for a lot of kind of constant thought.
0: Completely understandable, Dave. And and I think this is a good format to think through things in a a setting where discussion can be had in the longer form. And so I thought we could start, though, with a bit of a background on each of your history in this space. Dave, could we start with you? I'd love to learn about your genesis block. What what did your introduction to crypto look like?
2: Sure. I started to hear first, like a lot of people about Bitcoin, sort of around the mid-2010s when there started to be press coverage about Silk Road. And you started to hear blockchain thrown around as a buzzword, but people i spoke to didn't really know what it meant and you would just run into these platitudes and at the time there weren't tons of resources where you could get really lucid information sort of on the secondary market so like a lot of people who became really curious about it i read the bitcoin white paper i was surprised by how accessible it was there there were you know some symbolic things in there i couldn't quite understand probably still couldn't but it seemed to be like a really clever set up to be able to have people trustlessly transact without having to rely on a third-party intermediary. And sort of the repercussions of that seemed very profound to me. And so I then found a book by Nathaniel Popper, Digital Gold, which is one of the great early books about the creation of Bitcoin and the early ecosystem, and became very interested, started to read about possible corporate applications of blockchain. Around that time, a lot of people were saying, blockchain, not Bitcoin. (laughs) That was around like, 2015, 16. And I just rolled up my sleeves, did a fairly deep dive on it. Like a lot of people really was self-educated. And I wouldn't profess to be a deep expert on a lot because it's such a huge area. But over time, you learn a few things and and I became more and more interested in the Ethereum ecosystem and smart contract technology. started to write about that a little bit and had some speaking opportunities. And it just sort of built from there. And so like a lot of people kind of started off with Bitcoin and then broadened my focus where now I'm sort of just amazed at how many issues have, have spawned from this thing.
0: And Kevin, I'll, I'll turn it to you. Was your introduction to the space similar to Dave's or did you have a different path?
1: You know, it was a different path. It's, I certainly was aware of the white paper and, you know, sort of generally read about the area. But my deeper interest in crypto is a little more recent than Dave's, still goes back a number of years. I've just always been very interested in new technologies and how they can change the conduct of business. And you know, here in a knowledge-based economy, the way data and information are shared, stored and used just has far-reaching repercussions. And this is a large industry that's arisen centered around digital assets with various functions and at its foundation is blockchain. And that's really what caught my deep interest on the first occasion both learning about the permissionless side and the permission side because the the use cases were just profoundly fascinating at the time it seemed revolutionary essentially for both those on the inside and those on the outside of the digital beltway you know everyone could appreciate that and from blockchains generally of course it's just a hop skip and a jump to keen interest in crypto specifically and some of the many issues that are you know at the fore today and and the many fascinating prospects that this arena presents.
2: Yeah, I mean as lawyers it's like being a kid in a candy store because the the law school exam questions frankly write themselves in this area.
0: When you come at digital assets from a legal perspective, particularly an idea of a decentralized immutable ledger, it gets very interesting very quickly and I can imagine at the time crypto began to gain traction and even the blockchain not bitcoin ideas you were both practicing attorneys, you had experience on the legal side. Whereas for myself, I came more from crypto. And then as I was in law school, I thought, oh my goodness, like what an amazing area to build a career. And because it's so fascinating, whereas you had this previous experience and then brought this new technology into your practice. What did that look like on the early days? Are there, and you don't need to give any specifics, but are there examples of early stages where crypto began to overlap with your practice?
1: Sure. And, and you know, maybe a good place to begin is to talk about not the sort of initial interests of individuals, because there are a number of folks here who had their own respective backgrounds that led them to interest in the field. I mean, you heard from Dave, who I think is just one of the great minds in the space, truly, and, and a scholar who has been thoughtful, studied the space for years, and help stoke interest in others in a really powerful way. And others here at the firm have their own respective backgrounds that have similarly informed the way we sort of cu- came to this topic. But what I want to what I'll mention is just how we all came together because it's very much a story that I think reflects our firm and has made it a, an especially fun area to to focus on as one among several areas. So last year we formed a specialized crypto team, and it was really to focus on the rapidly changing issues generated by the crypto asset industry. And our intent was to develop a nuanced view among those on this group of legal and regulatory issues confronting companies that were using new technology, including blockchain generally, as it would gain wider adoption within the mainstream and how to mitigate or keep in mind those risks in the context of the firm's traditional work. In some ways, having a crypto team was very unique for us. On my side of things as a litigator, our practice has always been as generalists. It's something I've loved about growing up as a lawyer and a partner at, at Wachtell Lipton. Many other firms, you sort of hyper-specialize, but we've remained generalists, and I think that's true for Dave as a as a transactional lawyer and, and others. But for many of the areas, including our high-stakes litigation practice, we've always infused our work with an interdisciplinary, all-hands-on-deck mentality at Wachtell Lipton, so corporate litigation, refinance, and much more. We all put our heads together from our various perspectives on any challenging matters. And I give you that background because this specialized crypto team we've developed, of course, it has a topical focus, but it embodies what's best about those traditions at Wachtell Lipton. You know, I've worked with and advised on litigation matters, touching on a variety of crypto related businesses from different parts of the arena from banks dealing with crypto companies, crypto companies dealing with other crypto companies, different kinds of crypto participants. And of course now matters raising fundamental questions about crypto dealing with the government. And in all of these, we've sought to bring that inter- interdisciplinary focus that we think allows us to bring the best of our skills in and insights to bear. And you know, I'll say that's on the litigation side, the same is true on the transactional side where we Focus on transactions of every variety. The industry gyrations that we've all witnessed in the last few years are facilitating some streamlining, some expansion, all with really interesting questions and opportunities for potentially big moves by players. Again, some already in the crypto arena, some who are looking to get in while the going seems good. And so in the corporate sphere as well, from potential acquisitions to advising institutions to clients affected by bankruptcies and much more, all of these areas are really amazing opportunities to bring together talent from and, and insights and thinking from quite diverse perspectives. To me, that's the most fun about having this this anchor focus area as one among several areas that I, I spend a lot of time on.
2: Yeah. And I, let, Jacob, let me amplify that with one, with one thing, which is going to be a weird thing to say on a crypto legal podcast, but I think there is no such thing as crypto law per se, right? Rather you have traditional legal disciplines are implicated by the many issues that this new field poses, right? So I'm traditionally a corporate M&A lawyer, have done my share of securities work and corporate governance related things. And there are a lot of things within crypto that touch those areas, but we wouldn't purport to or hold ourselves out to be like literally all things crypto, right? I mean, if you wanted to set up a an entity in the Cayman Islands to support a DAO or something that wouldn't necessarily be within sort of like our normal bailiwick. And nor would we hold ourselves out as that. Really, the crypto focus here is a way for us to apply the traditional practice groups that we focus on with the sensitivity that this new area requires, because it does pose a lot of novel issues. But it's really complementary of our existing practice. We're not attempting to be like everything under the sun and i actually would be skeptical of lawyers who purport to be able to handle everything within crypto because no one lawyer has the skill set to literally do everything i mean we we may think of ourselves as like warrior priests a little bit but yeah you can't be like every everything under the sun at one time
1: I, Dave, that is—you're you, going to need a T-shirt that that says "Warrior Priest" after this. I love it. No, I think it's a great point, and I mean, look, in my own practice, my practice as a generalist covers everything from transactional litigation to regulatory and criminal defense, you know, alternative dispute resolutions like AD, like arbitration, and appellate litigation, and all of those areas allow me the perspective, the focus, the training, the the. The enjoyment for, among other things, touching on the problems that affect companies that are in the crypto space, companies that are looking to get into it or those that are not. And so it's a generalist practice that that has one really interesting area that includes this.
0: And I've had the chance to speak with some of what I consider to be the best lawyers in the world. And the emphasis consistent throughout has been the idea is not being a crypto lawyer, it's being a good lawyer first and then applying the skills and the disciplines that you learn in the different practice areas to an industry. And I think what both of you said has echoed that sentiment. To turn it a bit more to the history of the digital asset space as we've seen it develop over time and as you in your practices have seen it grow, when you look at the traditional financial system and and its history over time, beginning with agriculture and debt and and then government bonds and evolving to digital assets as we see today, I, I believe it was I believe it was both of you published an article. And, and one of the things that mentioned in that article were that the protective features of the TradFi or the traditional finance system did not spring fully formed with the advent of markets, but evolved as a result of bitter experience, which need not be relearned at the expense of crypto investors and financial stability. Do you, Have you seen the development of the protections in the financial system or in the legal side of digital assets evolving in the manner you expected.
2: I, I I would say it has been in the manner I expected and unfortunately that manner is through bitter experience and I was sort of hopeful that the industry would not need to be burned on a hot stove to learn that one ought not to touch a hot stove but unfortunately that, you know that's the way historically financial lessons have been inculcated you can think about the uh, the crash of 1929 or more recently which is something we lived through here in spades at at our firm was the financial crisis of 2008 where we were involved in a lot of the major transactions of that era and it became pretty clear during the last bull run that there was some of what former chairman of the fed might have called irrational exuberance and you, you had people just kind of going bonkers with DeFi, yield farming, and especially with some of the centralized lenders who really had sort of quintessential shadow bank like function where the notion was, hey, come deposit your crypto. And mind you, this was before like our current inflationary cycle where you weren't getting, you know, like four and a half percent on a bank deposit account. You were lucky if you're getting like 10 basis points, the ability to get eight percent or north of that of a return on your crypto, which is otherwise a passive asset, was very attractive to a lot of people in the market, right? But then it raises the obvious question, well, how are these companies generating that return? And obviously it was clear there was rehypothecation going on. And within banking, which is an area we have focused on here, a lot of financial institutional work, right? Financial institutions are assessed on a lot of metrics, like their their capital, their asset quality, and among the things that they have to have is very strong risk management. And you also have limits on concentration risk, right? Like a, a bank cannot lend 40% of its assets to one single borrower because if that borrower defaults, the bank is in a world of hurt. And so it seemed rather clear that th- there was some activity going on, w- w- which it wouldn't take too long for there to be sort of like a bunch of falling dominoes. So I'm not claiming that we predicted that. I'm not Nostradamus by, by any stretch of the imagination, but w- we did think that there was risk in the system. And I think we've seen that manifest with the Terra Luna collapse leading to three hours capital, leading to Celsius and block five Voyager, everything that, that we've seen within the space and everything was so interrelated and, and the risks were so outsized now people have learned that very much the hard way. You know what, if you're going to place your crypto assets with a centralized party in order to generate a return, there may be some risk around that. You don't have the benefit of like FDIC insurance. And so I, I think that going forward, these kind of business activities may remain desirable, right? But it should be within a rubric that has some balance. And I think if if you've read things that we've written, we sort of take a consistent stance towards these things, which is we have to not have the pendulum swing too far in one direction or the other. You don't want to have regimes that are completely permissive of bad activity. (laughs) You shouldn't permit any bad activity, but at at the same time, you don't want to crack down and take, uh, take the ability to have products away from people. And so unfortunately, we've learned the hard way.
0: Thank you for that answer, Dave, and and I agree. It's been unfortunate that we've had to touch the stove and many people continuously have been touching the stove and such a good example and also reminder that the rules we have in place today are here for a reason. Real issues occurred, systemic risk, things like that, and rules have been put in place to avoid issues repeating themselves. Whereas in the digital asset space, it feels like we're learning all those rules in a much compressed time scale. And it's encouraging to me that the industry has been resilient and stuck around despite everything that's continued to happen, much like the traditional markets have over time. In October 2021, you had published the article titled Crypto Assets at an Inflection Point, which included a principled approach to regulation, touching on things like stablecoins should remain robust and transparent reserves under regulatory oversight. Deposit-like products require particular regulatory focus. Significant DeFi participation should require a KYC touchpoint. Market integrity is paramount, and security disclosure should take into account crypto assets' distinctive features. I thought this was it was a great segue just on the last point, because these are all examples of a principles-based approach where this is the where the risks could sit, and this is what we should be regulating towards. What if any changes to this list would you make today?
1: You know, I, I think all of these things seem important still today. And one of the things Dave and I have talked about is what's the best way to solve for the significant DeFi present participation requiring a KYC touchpoint. And I know we're going to talk a little bit more about that in, in a bit. How to strike the right balance in this space between the rights to financial privacy and prevention of abuse. And Dave, why don't you, why don't you pick it up from there?
2: Yeah, sure. I'd, I'd be happy to. Look, I think that in, in looking at that list of things that we wrote about in this memo at the peak of the of the last bull run it was clear that there was some risk accruing around some centralized parties in particular the ones offering deposit like products and it's ironic because in in like 2016 17 the mantra was crypto is good because centralized institutions are prone to failure And then the narrative quickly became in 2022. Actually, crypto is bad because centralized institutions are prone to failure, right? What we saw was very much a failure of centralized entities, not of the technology. And that's something that is important to point out to people because Bitcoin is still out there mining blocks. And you look at things like Ethereum, the transition to proof of stake was actually rather smooth, right? So this is a robust and mature technology at this point. What you have are issues really relating to some activities. And it's in the domain of just needing to balance competing imperatives. I mean, this is the kind of thing that comes up in many domains. And I think we're probably going to talk about tornado cash a little bit later. The suggestion that we have that in some manner DeFi would have to reckon with KYC issues is something that we continue to think about. There are a lot of people who are kind of orthodox libertarian who very much take the view that people should be able to do whatever they want within DeFi and that ultimately you could impose restrictions just on end users. For example, there's nothing that restricts cash transactions, but you still have an obligation to file taxes with the IRS if you received a lot of cash. You could have DeFi sort of work like that and try to ferret out bad actors in some other manner. And and the, the counterpoint to that view would be sort of like the more extreme one, which is you have to have KYC and full kind of like OFAC compliance for any time that you put computer code on the internet, no matter what you're doing, it could be, you're sending a $50 NFT to someone and you're going to violate the law. If if you haven't validated who's on the other side of that, buying your, uh, you know, like board ape knockoff or whatever. And the right answer, like for a lot of these things is probably somewhere in the middle. I'm not positive actually what the right answer is in terms of making sure that if you're going to send like $10 million of value over the internet, to pseudonymous or even anonymous counterparty, there is actually a legitimate interest of society in making sure that it's not like North Korea or a terror organization on the other side. On the other hand, we don't want to saddle this technology with centralization, which is, I think, something you can see, for example, through the proposed legislation that would require DEXs to come under kind of like full ATS Regulation, So I think there remains a need to solve that. And and I, I just hope we can do that without throwing the baby out of the bathwater. I think that solving for digital identity is really a killer app within this space. And you may be able to do that through zero knowledge, where basically you, you validate that, okay, this is a clean counterparty I can deal with, but without revealing the identity of that counterparty. There are different ways that that might be accomplished. I know there are some projects that are attempting to solve for digital identity, Civic is like one that comes to mind. I'm not endorsing any particular solution. I just think that that's kind of like a killer app within the space. People should be able to transact freely, but at the same time, safely is, is something that I think requires a lot of focus. And there's really no solution for that. I think at this point, though, the other things we wrote uh, have held up pretty well. It seems pretty clear that there will be some kind of stablecoin regulation that will require full safe reserves. I think there's a recognition that if you have deposit-like products with people depositing crypto assets, that's going to require some protection around it, in particular around not commingling like custodial assets with uh, with companies' own assets, et, et cetera. And uh, yeah, covered a lot, so we could probably, probably move to the next item.
0: Yeah, there's quite a few different paths we can go from there. And I do want to touch on decentralization and the arguments for it. In a second. The one thing you mentioned, though, that I think is very important is this fundamental tension between digital assets and self-sovereignty versus AML, KYC regimes that do exist for a reason as well. And and I think there is a very... Tangible benefit to having these things in place. And I'm glad you mentioned zero knowledge proofs because that to me is a very interesting innovation where you can get the best of both worlds. There will need to be some oversight of the programming on the back end and how those zero knowledge proofs are working. Whether that works directly with the government or not will be a question I'm sure we'll see parsed out over the next few years. But I agree, it is a good example of the killer use case for digital assets, where now you can have the privacy at the same time you have that oversight as well. The one thing I really want to touch on with both of you is this idea of decentralized technology. If you were arguing the merits of decentralized technology when it comes to these immutable ledgers and and the ability to sort of Carve facts in stone. What would you? What are the strongest points that the industry can advocate on when it comes to things like decentralization?
2: That's a great question. I think we're, we'll both have things to say about it. I, I, I can start. First of all, I think the original insights of the Bitcoin white paper hold up extremely well, which is the concept that people who do not know each other can transact in a manner that is secure and where you're not going to have a double spend, and you can do that through software. And we look at all the things that we rely on for our daily life. The famous quote is that software is eating the world. I think that's true to an extent. There are a lot of things that we currently rely on that we don't even think about anymore, right? I mean, back in the day, I remember ordering shoes on Amazon, and someone was like, how could you order shoes on Amazon? How would you ever know they they would fit, right? And, and now it's something people wouldn't even think about. And DEXs work extremely well, right? I think that Uniswap now on version four, which I'm still checking out, has has been audited and is, is a really clever and, and very functional ecosystem. I think the key point is that decentralization is a means, not an end in and of itself, right? Decentralization is effective and, and works and is useful for certain things, it's not something you need for every function in life. So, I mean, mm-hmm. we're not cult mm-hmm. members. Like you had some people in 2016 would say, like just add blockchain for, for any problem that you could imagine. So I, I think that an example of, of something that works that works really well is the any function where you're able to just automate something that is today otherwise captured by someone who would, who would capture rent. Right, so in, in a decentralized sort of open blockchain, I think Kevin will talk more about the permissioned side, which which takes a little bit of a backseat in terms of what's spoken about publicly, but I think remains equally important. But just in, anything that you can sort of do on an open blockchain where you're able to even simply just transfer an asset from one person to another without having to use a an intermediary, I think it gives people tremendous power, basically to have control over their own their own assets and their own Activities, it's really sort of the sovereign individual model, and I think it it works it works really well. So basically, the efficiency, the elimination of friction and rent seeking, and and we we see that work very well in Ethereum and similar layer one Turing complete models. I'll let I'll let Kevin speak to the, some of the permission use cases.
0: And one thing I want to underscore that you mentioned, Dave, too, is the idea of decentralization and giving people rails upon which they can interact. And centralized intermediaries emerged for a reason because they could offer those trusted counterparties with which you could do business. Whereas now, if you can have a system, an almost ecosystem that's self-reinforcing when it comes to the rules, that can provide a really elegant solution to many of the problems that we've seen over time. Please, Kevin.
1: No, I, I, that's a great point. I think nicely put, Jacob. As David said, let us not forget permission blockchains. And a lot of folks are already familiar with the supply chain management use cases. It's being used in the real world already. And there are more examples in the category of enterprise blockchain that are of great interest to many clients of ours, you know, whether it's health data, digital identity management, or any number of other prospects. It's fascinating to hear You know, classic, ordinary blue chip companies delving into this very cutting edge, innovative space and seeing ways to use, among other things, permission blockchains, as I said, in supply chain management use cases and many others that, are, that can be integrated into their business. Just to take an example that Dave and I have enjoyed kicking around, how many times have you gone to different doctors and filled out the same medical forms or had issues with records? And if someone who's older and has difficulty entering information. They go to different doctor's offices or different hospital networks on different systems and different information is entered at different times in ways that could have medical consequences. Set aside the logistical hassle of entering everything for billing and consistent information there. It's useful, it can be useful, if done right, to have a system where you can securely upload certain data in an encrypted form that's secure, that you can functionally control with a private key and share that data selectively with any provider that you choose, just as one example of Of such a use case and that has to it's essential that that preserve privacy it's a heavily regulated area with things like hipaa and so on but the efficiency gains as long as it's done correctly in terms of health and cost savings could be massive and there are many other examples like that and so thinking these things through and actually again not just among folks who are if you will crypto savvy but talking with clients about it, talking with non-clients in the general space about thinking, where is the world going? I mean, we all can't help but be imagine horizons now with AI intersecting with crypto and imagining conditions and trends in that respect where there's just a, a revolution that feels at hand and both being essential ingredients to that revolution, the AI side and the crypto side. I think the permission blockchain offers at least one very fascinating setting that where the promise can't be disputed.
2: Yeah. And let, let me add one thing to that, which is we now undisputably live in a world where a tremendous amount of wealth is generated through data and information, right? And historically, the way that Information has been stored has sort of mirrored the way that wealth is created. So, in, in the era of agriculture, you'd write things down on parchment, and I think we still kind of do that with like land deeds, for example. And in the era of industrialization, that's when you start to have think of like a you know a warehouse with eight thousand banker boxes in it filled with with documents. And we're still kind of in that world a little bit. We're sort of transitioning from that world to a more digital world. And a big part of that is ultimately, okay, with data having all this value and so much of the data being about us, who's going to have control over that data? And ultimately, that's what Web3 is about. There's so many buzzwords and so much jargon in this space, but what it's really ultimately about is people having control over their own activities on the internet, over their own data, over what they want to do and not being reliant on others for every function. Even within crypto, you know, there's a need for centralized parties and Not everyone is going to go out and want to like install MetaMask and have a hardware wallet, right? So we need better user interfaces within the space as well. But it's ultimately about people being able to engage in the activity that they desire to freely.
1: You can hear Jacob in in one line of David's answer the nostalgia that may be stoked in some lawyers for those days of yore of warehouses filled with boxes that they could traffic in. I'm sure many are thinking back sentimentally about that.
2: I'm not sure "sentimental" is the right word, but, uh, <laughs> but yes, <laughs> exactly, exactly. I can't
0: I can't even imagine what that was like. Now we we see it all digitally. Even going to the library is something that. I haven't seen happen too often in my legal career to pick up a physical book, whereas now you can search it all online. My, my heart goes out to all the lawyers who had to go through that over Uh-oh. the years
1: Jacob, you're you're now exposing the, the generational gap because Dave and I Dave and I were trained in law school on on those old hard books with dusty pages. And you know, I will say I was I was at a time of transition, but I did learn how to shepherdize in books. And, you know, Lexus was around and Westlaw was there, but but we learned the, the old ways, if you will, too.
2: Yeah, I would say Kevin, most of our listeners have probably never woken up in a cold sweat thinking they forgot to check the pocket part. And if you don't know what that <laughs> if you don't know what that is, you don't want to know. Let's just leave it at that.
1: Yeah, I, I can't say anyone's missing out on these things, but 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 that is a funny reference, Jacob. You're right.
0: One one thing you mentioned too, Kevin, was AI and, and the overlap that that can have with crypto. And I think Amera's Law is something I often reference on this podcast, where we tend to overestimate the short term effects of a new technology like crypto and AI. But in the long run, we really underestimate how these technologies will shape society and when you think about the overlap there, the potential is, is really enormous. I want to just shift gears slightly and talk about the tornado cash lawsuit. And Dave, I watched you, you speak on this a bit at the GBBC. There's a great YouTube video, actually. It's called Hot Topics in Blockchain Law. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. I Unfortunately, it was a bit too good because I ended up watching the whole thing. My my goal was just to see what you had spoken about. So I highly recommend everyone checks that out. But I did want to touch on the tornado cash lawsuit. And we saw Van Loon. Jacob, and-
1: Jacob I just have to say, you're not the first person who described Dave's lectures as a gateway drug to more on the <laughs> topic. So don't, don't be too hard on yourself for watching the whole thing.
2: Well, I, I wish my family members felt that way, but let's... <laughs>
0: But I do want want to touch on this Van Loon versus the Department of Treasury case that was brought in the Federal District Court of West District of Texas on September 8th, 2022, where six individuals who had previously used tornado cash filed a complaint in the Western District of Texas, challenging OFAC's authority to designate the protocol. Could we discuss the position the Treasury took there and the implications? Could you just share briefly the position for those who might have heard of it but need a refresher?
2: Yeah. So as background, Tornado Cash is basically a crypto mixing service. So there would be an ability to send crypto through the Tornado Cash protocol, which ran on Ethereum. And basically, it would obfuscate who the sender was and who had received it basically using zero knowledge. And there was a considerable amount of illicit use of Tornado Cash. I think it was something like 26% of the volume that went through it was illicit and it involved bad actors, including the likes of North Korea. Now, obviously it's undesirable as a policy matter to have conduits where people can engage in in money laundering and the like, right? But there was a lot of legitimate activity that happened through tornado cash. There are reasons people might want to transact privately for any number of reasons. And you don't need to think of crazy like corner cases for why someone might want to transact privately. Yes, there were things like donations to the Ukraine that ran through Tornado Cash, and you could think about someone, I don't know, who like needs to escape an abusive relationship and pay their rent that they don't want their partner to know about it. But like in a more kind of simple example, remember that blockchains are not anonymous, they're pseudonymous, right? So if you went into a coffee shop and you decide you're going to use USDC to pay for your cup of coffee, someone can then associate your payment with your wallet. You don't necessarily want them to see all your financial activity. It would be akin to showing your bank statement to the barista, right? Which is not something most people would want to do. So there are legitimate reasons to have financial privacy, right? So this is a classic case where you have two competing goods, the desire to be able to transact privately on the internet, but the fact that that is susceptible to abuse. And how do you balance that? And the thing that's really interesting here is that the OFAC designation really treated tornado cash as a person, as a legal matter. And and the implication was also that the smart contract, which again, is just a piece of code running on the internet is property. And those are questions that could have pretty significant repercussions, right? We really want to think of a software protocol as a person, as a legal actor. It's just code, right? And the, who has a kind of property interest in open source software that sort of anyone could deploy. I mean, I'm not a, an IP lawyer. I, I have some familiarity around the edges, so I'm not going to speak to all the details around it, but software is also a form of speech, right? That's protected under the first amendment. So if you're going to require that kind of software program that would enable people to transfer value privately build in some kind of KYC within it? Are you basically directing that speech has to be conducted in a particular manner? It just opens up like a whole range of really interesting and difficult issues. And the issue with all these things is the technology cannot be uninvented, right? They can sanction tornado cash, but that code is out there and the principles that the code embodies are out there. And they're not going away. And even for academic purposes, I think you can find that code. It may have been taken off GitHub, but you know it's it's out there. And there's nothing that would prevent someone from deploying it and calling it, you know, Jacob code or anything. I'm not recommending that any listener do that, by the way. So so I I don't know how that's going to play out. There are really compelling Mm -hmm. amicus briefs that have been written in the case, but at the same time, you can see the government interest in it and. I think we have to, again, find a way where there's some kind of a balanced solution. And some of that may be focusing more on, more on end users and not preventing kind of like all activity, forcing it through traditional rails. There's really a balancing that has to go on there. And I'm not professing to have, you know, 100% the right answer, but I'm concerned that sort of either way it lands, we're going to be running into an issue.
0: Yeah, and we've seen many people analogize this to sanctioning something like a spreadsheet software where, yes, some percent of it, some percentage of the use of this software could be for illicit finance, but that doesn't mean necessarily the software itself is a a foreign national or something that could be subject to sanctions, let alone should be, you know, governed in in the first place
2: right in a way it's like an element it's like putting the wind on trial because it knocked down a building In 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 one respect right and i guess in theory you could do that but what, what does it mean
0: Right. Or sanctioning a highway, because that's the highway that most robbers tend to take after they steal money from the bank. It just It's it's an interesting dynamic, because at the same time, you can see from the Treasury side that they're, okay, we want to stop the ability of a foreign actor or foreign national who we, we've sanctioned from using some software. But it goes to, do you actually sanction the person themselves using the software, or the software, or the road, or the dumpster, or whatever it is that they use? And so that will be interesting to see, because I can imagine the precedent that could be set by a case like this would have far reaching effects.
2: I think that's right. And look, one possible sort of like middle road solution might be to require for activity of a certain magnitude that you'd have to file some kind of report to be in compliance. I'm not advocating for that, but I'm just saying that there are middle ground solutions that go beyond having a free for all on the one hand and just banning this kind of technology on the other hand, which is not even possible to do because it, again, it will not be uninvented.
0: Agreed. And and because it's all open source too, anyone can go in and fork the code. And now all of a sudden, do do those individuals have sanctioned property? How does that, how does that play? And, and underline all this is this idea of smart contracts. And in 2017, you published a, What I thought was a great article, and obviously over time, I'm sure your views have changed, but the goal of this article was to enhance the discussion around smart contracts. And many people have continuously discussed how that might not be the most apt term because it suggests a contract. And you discussed in this article whether smart contracts are, in fact, contracts, are they smart? Are they legally recognizable? I was wondering if you could just give a brief overview of the article for those who might not have seen it and how you've seen the discourse around smart contract change since then.
2: Sure. That's like one of the first things I wrote within this space. I'm not sure it's held up entirely, but at the time around 2017, and I think it was on Coindesk, you heard people talking about smart contracts all the time, but when you heard them talk about it, it meant different things to them. In particular, you go to a lot of legal conferences and It was a lot of the OG lawyers back then, like Marco Santori would be up on stage talking about smart contracts. And you'd hear that and you'd think like, okay, we're talking about a legal contract to offer acceptance and consideration. But really what people sometimes meant at the time, and now I think almost universally mean now, is smart contracts in the sense of just executable code on a blockchain. And I think that that has become the pervasive use of the term But I remain very interested in really what I wrote about, which is actual legal binding agreements that are either entirely or partly in code-based form, because that's part of the magic of being able to have a nexus between assets and a programmable decentralized computer network where you can transfer value from one party to another securely. Because there are a lot of things that exist within legal agreements that are very much like a computer program. They're just written in prose and they have to be manually administered by a lawyer. And Kevin has been involved in a lot of cases, for example, that involve contractual interpretation and the application of a particular provision in a certain fact pattern. And look, there are cases where you're not going to be able to program a concept like, for example, reasonable best efforts would be hard to put into computer code, right? But a, a concept like once there has been a one-year holding period for particular securities, the transfer restriction will fall away. That would be something that's very easy to program. So if you go and look at something like a, an anti-dilution provision in a warrant, to use a very simple example, right? If a company does a stock split, you can't just keep the exercise price and number of warrants that are outstanding the same. You have to adjust it. You should be able to get twice as many shares as you did before because there's now twice as many shares on a diluted basis. And the exercise price should be cut in half because there's half as many shares, right? Well, if you do a stock split and you forget that you have to do a warrant adjustment, as a lawyer, you're going to run into an issue. A computer program could do that. If you had the shares in blockchain-based form, and I'm talking here about literal corporate shares, you could automate functions like that. And I think that we may talk more about NFTs later, but as we get to more mature use cases where you start to have assets on the internet that have actual real financial value, you may have actual smart contracts in the original way that I thought about it, which is not just executing code on a blockchain, but actually having some portion of a legal relationship between parties automated. And the efficiency gains that could open up are, are pretty interesting.
1: Dave, all I have to say is don't give up on your dream of automating reasonable best efforts clauses on a smart contract. I think you'd save a lot of heartache from lawyers and chancellors and, and so on in, in Delaware if they didn't have to have many of those cases and it could all be automated. A tough nut to crack, to be sure, but don't sell yourself short.
2: Well, maybe AI can Exactly. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Just one thing I wanted to dive a little bit further down, and Kevin, feel free to jump in or or Dave on this one, is with regards to smart contracts. And if you think about the current system of contractual agreements where they're based in trust in the ability to enforce the contract in a court of law and see some sort of recourse if the contract is breached. And when you think about smart contracts, well, the risk is is a bit different, right? The risk is in this case Does it execute as we want it to execute? And so that would call for almost a new regime where even in the example of of tokens or, or layer one solutions compared to, say, equities offerings, where the risk is in the Efforts of this managerial entrepreneurial team when it comes to traditional equities, whereas in things like smart contracts, that risk is more technological based than any underpinnings that the coders or developers might have had in made backdoors or things like that. So it'll be interesting to see how the rules change over time. I mean, I'd be curious how you are both thinking about the the regulation pertaining to the risks that these new technologies pose, as opposed to the traditional rules we have.
2: Yeah, I, maybe I can start. And I, I, what what I would say is smart contracts, and I'll go to the classic example that technologist Nick Zabo, an attorney, had, had, has given many times as a vending machine. We've had smart contracts for a long time, right? You put a dollar into a soda machine, you expect to get your can, right? And There may be a circumstance where it was empty or maybe it's there and it gets like stuck and doesn't come out. I I guess technically that would be a, a breach because you've given your consideration, haven't received the consideration in return, but that is essentially a proto smart contract, right? And there are a lot of things like that out there. I think that for basic use cases, it involves sort of a Boolean analysis, like if X, then Y. Especially if, if whatever X is, is something that is objectively verifiable, like through an Oracle, and if what the Y is, is something that a computer can do, there's really not a r- lot of risk around it. It's if a particular thing happens, then there's going to be a particular consequence. And if you can know with certainty what, what the trigger event is, was it satisfied or not? And, and that could be something like, was the, was the temperature above 80 degrees in, the, in this location? Right and if the then is something that, that a computer can reliably do then there's not a lot of risk around it but ultimately there are a lot of people who take the view that not lawyers but but, but that use the mantra code is law that if you're going to interact with a particular computer program then it's just going to give you whatever result it's programmed to do and you just have to live with the consequences and i think people can decide that they want to transact in that manner but when you're thinking about actual commercial arrangements between parties who are sophisticated who are bargaining for a particular result I think that the smart contract in the sense that I'm talking about it is sort of a a means to achieving that and isn't necessarily representing the totality of the agreement. So I think we may wind up with like a a sort of a hybrid where some of the performance is happening through a computer, but ultimately if that performance doesn't happen in the way that was agreed, unless the parties explicitly agree that it's all going to happen through the code, then there might be some remedy that happens sort of off chain.
0: And when it comes to these digital assets, one area we've seen continue to Sort of, it's a bit of a roller coaster in terms of prominence and growth and speculation, but NFTs really pose such an interesting question, not only from a legal side, but also just from a business and economical side as well, because they can be so unique and they can reference underlying art. We've seen examples where they reference vacant land, ownership of governance, voting abilities, whether it's a membership token or a, a protocol governance. There are many different use cases that we've seen over time. I was wondering if, if you could touch on what you have seen from your end with regards to NFTs and, and what your thoughts are of that technology going forward.
1: I'll just say it's a, it's a fascinating technology. As you said, the use cases are many I'm going to leave this one to Dave because it's an area of passion for him. But I, I'm just going to warn you that you should sit back in your couches and chairs and get comfortable because these are some great thoughts. But Dave has thought a lot about this and has a lot to share. Dave, go ahead, please.
2: Yeah, no, thank you. Look, I think that the use cases we've seen to date with NFTs are largely limited to like profile pictures and collectibles, and I think that that's very interesting. It's been fun to play with. Obviously, it's very much of a of a crypto winter when it comes to all that. But really, the use case that's of longer range interest to us and many of our clients, by the way, and not only traditional sort of like retail and entertainment clients, but I think a, a lot of clients have. I've asked about this, are are the horizons for more sophisticated use cases once you have a representation of value on the internet of a unique asset, right? I mean, there's no reason because the technology now exists where something like the title to your car could not be in the form of an NFT. And if you sell your car, rather than rummaging around for the piece of paper you got from a Hyundai dealer or whatever, you could just transfer it on chain. There's some benefit to that. But in terms of the power that's unlocked around commercial transactions, and a great example is something like royalties for for music, right? Which is something that you're already seeing. There are artists who are able to put their music on the internet in the form of an NFT, and you can get a, a, a streaming royalty whenever it's paid for. Technologically, that exists. I don't think there's like wide adaptation of that it's not competing with with platforms like Spotify yet as far as i know i haven't given it like a, a deep look but i know the technology exists you can make look it's expensive with ethereum gas but if you're talking about something like polygon right you can make micropayments without it being very expensive so things like where today there's a model where the artist ultimately doesn't have complete control over their music and the way that they get paid is sort of through a publishing company that maybe every few months cuts them a royalty check, and you have to hope that everyone added up the number correctly from every platform that the music was was played on. You have something where a creator has much more control and where you can give them the, the, the direct nexus to the economics of it. And the potential for that is really rather unlimited because you can program a computer to do essentially anything, right? So I, I think that it's something that we're only at the beginning of and people who are dismissive of NFTs because they question the, the aesthetic merits of it aren't yet seeing the, the longer range potential. Obviously, there's a nexus between that and metaverse development, which remains of a lot of interest. People care increasingly about their digital identity in the current world? Is the real you the the, the the person who like sits around in meat space, or is it the, the avatar where you're playing video games like six or seven hours a day? I mean, I would encourage people to go outside and get a little bit of vitamin D, but there are a lot of people like their world revolves around their digital identity and being online. And the things that they own in the digital space mean a lot to them. And there are like billions and billions of dollars generated from that kind of activity. And so the potential for NFTs is tremendous. One of those potential things also would be to have like traditional securities in the form of, of of NFTs. I don't think we're in a world yet where you could have complete just like bearer shares in a traditional company. And I'm I'm not talking about any current issues around like what constitutes a security. I'm talking about taking traditional stocks and bonds and having them on the internet. And people can go back and read. It's one of the seminal things I got interested in back in the day was the last blockchain plunger speech that he gave where you could use blockchain to clean up proxy plumbing. If you had shares in blockchain-based form, you wouldn't wind up with a situation where you have an overcount or undercount at a shareholder meeting. You actually wouldn't really need the, the separation between the record date and the meeting date, which exists only for administrative reasons. There are so many efficiencies. If you think about a world where we have stable coins, you could pay dividends directly to someone's wallet, right? Through a, through a stable coin or even merger consideration. So for a transactional lawyer, I think that eventually those pathways are probably going to be unlocked at some point. And it's going to be very interesting to witness, but there, there's a lot of legal and regulatory questions that have to be answered to get from here to there
0: and that's where i think kevin's point earlier about permissioned blockchains will will come into play as well because things like shares and securities being traded there will be some oversight it won't just be anyone can create one and issue one depending on what it looks like and what the the chains look like and there's so many different areas where this use case can improve efficiency and so it will be really interesting to see and i think a lot of the critics in the space you hear touch on how the current functionality of something like blockchain isn't there. And it's a solution looking for a problem. But just even the points you underscored there, Dave, of how these are all efficiency issues that can lead to bigger problems if there are errors with cap tables or things like that. And so even just NFTs, for example, where it's difficult to enforce the royalties just because of you can't it they can't distinguish whether it's a transfer or a sale between wallets. And so things like this will all be sorted out <clears throat> over the next years. And and it's great to know that there's so many smart builders in the space because I do think the efficiencies we'll see will be enormous. One other thing I wanted to touch on with respect to NFTs, if you were to think through what we start to see next, because we've seen the the profile pictures, we've seen the art being sold through NFTs and some other areas emerge. But Dave or Kevin, do, what do you guys see as the next horizon in the short term when it comes to NFT usage?
2: You know, one thing that you're starting to see is like event tickets. I went to a Jets game and I was supposed to get a commemorative Tom Brady NFT, which is a Jets fan I probably didn't want. Uh, (laughs) I'm not sure it actually got into my wallet, but look, today where you used to get like paper tickets in the mail, and then eventually that became a thing where you have a digital thing with a QR code that you scan, but there's no reason that that couldn't be an NFT that also serves as a nice memento of the event. So rather than just having a piece of paper that says Woodstock, you know, you may have like a avatar of a dancing Taylor Swift be both your event ticket and your memento. And if that's a collectible with value, that's that's all the more attractive. So, I mean, that's like a very clear use case that's pretty much a slam dunk. I think for a lot of public uses also, we shouldn't forget that there are a lot of governmental inefficiencies that it would be nice to uh, to clean up and think about just the, uh, the chain of misery that goes into something as simple as like producing a driver's license, right? Why ought your driver's license and CLE certificates, for example, not be in the form of NFTs. I don't think we get CLE credit here, but I think you you could easily imagine a world where things like professional certifications and licenses, as long as they're digitally unique, I mean, there's no reason not to have those things be in digital form. I think we started to see steps in that direction with things like the COVID passports that people had to have in New York, those were not really in NFT form. But remember also the blockchain is just a means to an end. So when we talk about these things, It doesn't mean that you're going to be like installing a special app on your computer desktop. Ultimately, we'll get to like better user interfaces. But I think we'll be in a world not that long from now where things like tickets and different certificates that you need to use in your life are NFTs.
0: Agreed. And I'll turn it over to Kevin now. Kevin, are there any specific areas, whether voting, currency, governance in the crypto space where you are particularly excited to see be built out in the future?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And there are a lot of areas. I I think one that I'll just touch on that we're really interested in are the area of DAOs and their governance. And I'm sure it's something your listeners will be well familiar with from your earlier coverage. This is a new breed of business organization that's defined by the rejection of centralized traditional governance structures at the heart of our modern corporations. But what's interesting is how much there is an overlap or lessons to learn. So you have these decentralized blockchain-based organizations doing just a growing substantial volume of business activity, and many of them are encountering governance challenges. They hold billions of dollars of assets. They can do business at scale, all without centralized management or the involvement of traditional legal entities. But there are these governance issues like similarities to proxy voting and contest issues, conflicts of interest issues, unchecked voting related activity, Wolfpack-like activity, governance token holder liability, questions about legal wrappers, something recently litigated on, risk management challenges. All of these are areas, governance questions posed by DAOs that we're enjoying looking at that are evocative of many issues that we advise on in the corporate domain. And just for context, Jacob, Walk to Lipton has had a very long standing interest in effective corporate governance. We deeply believe that American prosperity depends on business organizations being managed in an optimal way that produces sustainable long term profitability while being consistent with social good. And things like avoiding short termism, carefully balancing separation of powers between the management and the board, getting that balance right is critical. And there's been just a lot of learning that's happened over decades of jurisprudence, especially in an area we we spent a lot of time with in Delaware. And Dave mentioned at the outset, this also pulls from a deep reservoirs of democratic theory as well. So, you know, it's a it's an emerging space that's still taking shape. The issues will undoubtedly continue to reveal themselves, but we're having a lot of fascinating discussions, thinking about what's there now, trying to offer advice and sort of you know, sober perspectives in light of lessons learned in other spaces already. And we're going to continue to pay close attention to it.
2: Yeah, and Kevin, that was well put. And I I would add to that, Jacob, like when you think about open source software that exists on decentralized networks, it's basically a public good, right? So in a way, it's sort of like, imagine a park. It's great to build a park with equipment that children can play on, but you need to maintain that equipment, right? I mean, eventually, like after... 10 years, if the sliding pond has like a broken leg, like a lot of kids are going to get hurt, right? Software code works the same way in that you need to be able to be dynamic, I think, for, for it to be optimal if you're really going to be relying on these functions that you can fix errors, that you can enhance things. And so you need the ability to administer the code. But how do you do that when it's something that's just out there on the internet? Clearly, you need some kind of governance over that. And the thing that really strikes us is people talk about the novelty of this space and that's very much true that we now have important economic functions carried out by software that doesn't have like one discrete owner or controller, but the issues that go around collective decision-making over something that has a economic effect and that should be done in a way that's efficient and effective. None of those issues are novel, right? So it would be our hypothesis that rather than just start out from scratch, right? We should, kind of like try to drink from the deep well that exists within the world of corporate governance, where people thought about these issues. And I don't think that we've seen yet true best practices emerge that everyone would point to as a model. You see a lot of models now in DAO governance. I mean, one issue that comes up, for example, is voter apathy, right? You if, if, Let's say that you hold a small amount of governance tokens in like 30 different DAOs, and you hold them only passively, you're not super interested in any one particular project or other, you may not vote. You may not, it's not worth your time to figure out the technical details of improvement proposal number 73 that's going to do this or that, right? And so you see voter apathy, you see people sort of like delegating their vote, which is like analogous to proxy situations. Sometimes to avoid repeat votes over minor things, you'll have a DAO decide to designate a particular group or body of people with authority to make routine day-to-day decisions. There's some analogy there to management, right? Like like IBM would not work very well as a company if the board had to make a decision about like which hallway to sweep first, right? There are people who, who hire the custodial staff and it, it all runs like a, a Swiss watch, right? So, with DAOs, all those, all those models that people are playing with, and now you see things like negative consent, which is like, this upgrade is going to happen unless people vote against it. It's all very interesting. And it, it's not all that sophisticated yet. I think it runs the gamut that you look at some of these things and they're rather crude. It looks like a Reddit message board or a Discord. And then in, in, in some other mechanisms, it's actually rather sophisticated that you're clearly like bonding your tokens through a smart contract and voting on something that's well-defined and it, it feels a little bit like electronically casting a proxy vote for like a mutual fund or something. But all the conflicts that we see play out in the corporate world, you see play out here as well. And I think that as this becomes more important, it hasn't really happened yet, but as it becomes more important, more lawyers are going to really be focusing on the design of these systems, particularly if they wind up being domestic within the US, which under the current legal regime, most of these things are offshore. But I think that may not be a permanent state of affairs.
1: And one thing just to add, I mean, I made reference to it earlier, but it's worth underscoring. A distinct aspect of this is not just the interest in governance challenges, but also the potential for significant disputes and interesting questions of law about how those disputes are handled involving DAOs. And that takes a couple of different forms in, in ways we've started to think about and even confront potential investor liability in DAOs, breach of commercial agreements that involve DAOs as a counterparty. You're on the other side of one. How do you deal with it? changes to the functionality of a blockchain protocol by a majority vote, disparately treating users of DAO-controlled blockchain protocols, including potentially expropriation of assets. And there's a a good example of that we may all be familiar with. So all of those are presenting what are in some ways very new, cutting-edge questions of law, and in other ways analogized to well-settled principles about how these disputes are resolved. And so thinking those through is, it's it's quite interesting. And I think it's going to be an an evolving front to pay attention to.
0: And I can imagine it will continue to grow in importance, but also in the, it will grow in the amount that it is litigated. So I am sure you will be busy in the future. Last question for both of you, and I want to be mindful of the time. So thank you for spending so long speaking with me. The first is for Dave. And Dave, Is there any advice that you were given early on in your career that has shaped who you have become today?
2: Yeah, and thank you. It's a great question. I've been fortunate to have a lot of great mentors here at Wachtel. And maybe the best piece of – I'll give a couple pieces of advice. But the best one that I received was, frankly, just to take ownership of – whatever it is that you're working on. And ultimately, I think that what we do requires a great amount of brain power sometimes, but really a lot of success as a lawyer is just really caring about what you're doing. And I think the the hallmark of so many wonderful people here that I work with and mentors that I had along the way is people who just really identified with the client and cared deeply about what they were doing. And if, if you take ownership of a matter that you're working on, and this particularly applies to junior lawyers, right? There's one world where you just do exactly what it is you're asked to do and no more. And then there's another world where you really try to figure out how that fits within the broader context of whatever matter you're working on, try to understand what the client's objectives are. If you do all those things, you're going to progress in your career much faster. You'll be a more effective lawyer. And I'll give just a couple of other pieces of advice I think I've developed over time here. One is I think it's great to remain curious, right? That's what attracted me to this space. And Kevin as well is... That with curiosity about new technology, new things, it's, it's very easy to remain in your lane and do what you've always done. It's been a lot of fun. I think being collaborative is, is a great hallmark of this space. There's so many wonderful lawyers here because there's so many issues, and it's we're all sort of kindred spirits that we're sort of figuring out all of that together. And I want to say a lot of nice things have been said about me on this podcast, but it's important to be humble because, believe me, the amount of stuff that all of us don't know. And me in particular is is vast. I know my way around certain areas within the space. There there are huge swaths of things that I'm pretty clueless about. And a lot of people that I've come across, I I would say are almost like genius level within the space. Even if I don't agree with them. I'm not going to give particular shout outs to, to, to a lot of people, but you know, people like uh, Lewis Cohen, Gabriel Shapiro, Michelle Gitlitz, another another person. Just I, I could name like, like, like probably 50 people. Andrea Tinianow. Now, I've learned a tremendous amount from so many people, and it, it just awes me like the depth of expertise that people have achieved. And it's important within a thing this vast to understand that you're not going to have all the answers and It's easy to make a mistake and be wrong, and you have to work hard to stay on top of things and and really dig deep. With that, I'll turn it over to Kevin.
1: Well, that's a lot of great advice. I mean, I'll I'll keep it 50,000 feet, do what you love, and always give that work your very best. That's certainly the most important advice I was given growing up and have taken to heart in my career. And I think something that's really promoted here at Wachtell Lipton and that I think applies for lawyers generally is... To always be thinking not just to be doing and carrying out matters tasks charges that have been given to you but thinking outside the box and trying to think about new areas it's something we're very much encouraged here to do i teach on the side as well and it, it activates a different part of my brain i teach an advanced corporate litigation seminar at yale law school talking with students about all the areas i practice in opens my thinking up to entirely new aspects of some of those questions that then it filters back into my practice and allows you to tackle new areas of law, new topics at first principles, and really hopefully make creative, bold arguments that, that, that's in space that hasn't been covered by others. That's sometimes the most successful area to, to try to navigate. So I really I, I encourage doing what you love, giving it your very best, and always trying to push yourself to think boldly, creatively and outside the box, because that's some of the most fun times of being a lawyer are when you're sitting and thinking about something new and learning something new.
0: Agreed. And and this podcast, I thought, was a great discussion on all the things that I'd hoped to to speak on and more. You are both clearly masters of your craft and continuously learning as well, which is important for warrior priests I, I wanted <laughs> I, I wanted to thank you both for taking the time to speak with me because I know how valuable your time is and how busy you both are so your generosity in that respect is greatly appreciated thank you
1: Jacob, we really enjoyed it. And, and let me just say in closing, you know, Dave and I both have followed your podcast. We've heard you know, your earlier guests, you've brought on some great folks, but I think it's a testament to you. Your, your, your questions are thoughtful. You're so engaged both with the conversation, but also the background of your guests. It's clear you, you really prepare and, and know your stuff and it makes it a fun, fun conversation to be a part of and, and to listen to as one of your listeners. So thanks very much for all that you're doing in the space.
2: Yeah, Jacob, I would add to that. Normally, I wouldn't want to listen to the type of podcast that would have me as a guest. But in, in this case, I'll make an exception because it really has been a tremendous like array of people. And I, I can't wait to see who you have on next.
0: Thank you both. I really appreciate those kind words. And we'll hopefully have you on again in the future.